0: Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Hey. I'm Justin Burt, joined tonight by Dr. Chris, the Chu Man chew, and we had a wonderful producer for this episode, Dr. Crystal Nora. Our guest tonight was Dr. Carissa Baker-Smith to discuss pediatric hypertension, a lot of great pearls. But before we dive into content, Chris, can you remind us about the show?
1: Yeah. Well, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. And we are so lucky to have Crystal here. Crystal, who do we have to talk today? Tell us a little bit about Dr. Carissa Baker-Smith.
2: We have a heart racing conversation with our guest, Dr. Carissa Baker-Smith. She's a preventative and transplant pediatric cardiologist who serves as the director of the Nemours Preventative Cardiology Program. She also currently serves as the chair of the atherosclerosis, hypertension and obesity of the Young Subcommittee of the American Heart Association Cardiovascular Disease. You'll want to take off your white coat and sit with your feet firmly planted for this conversation about pediatric hypertension. We will review screening guidelines for the blood pressures, initial workup, and the eventual treatment of hypertension in kids.
1: You know, Justin, the pressure was on on this one, but I think we made it through.
0: (laughs) Nice. High pressure. I get it. Uh, Dr. Baker-Smith, thank you so much for joining us. We're very grateful to have you on the show. Um, welcome to the Crib Thank
3: you. Thank you for having me. This is great. I'm very excited to be here.
0: <laughs> uh we're excited to have you and would love to get to know you better and have our listeners get to know you better. So to start out, we'd like to just ask some basic questions of kind of getting to know you. And so can you can you give us a little bit of a one-liner or describe yourself for our listeners and and uh, uh, what are some things that you're interested in, maybe outside of medicine?
2: Sure,
3: sure. So I am, my name is Carissa Baker-Smith. I am a pediatric cardiologist. I am a preventive pediatric cardiologist, so I specialize in prevention of acquired cardiovascular disease. Um, That includes high blood pressure, dyslipidemias. Um, I also have a fair number of kids who have overlapping comorbidities like obesity and sleep disordered breathing, and I Um, help them with the uh, cardiovascular manifestations of those conditions. And I'm also a transplant cardiologist, interestingly enough. I'm a researcher with a math background. So I was a math major in uh, undergrad and then did some cell and molecular biology work. So I have a master's in cell and molecular, and then I have another master's in biostatistics and uh, I do research about 40% now and 60% clinical. And then outside of that, because <laughs> I know you wanted to know about outside of medicine, I'm a runner. Don't run quite as much as I used to, maybe about 20 miles a week, so not not a ton. And I have run a marathon, ran the Baltimore under four hours. Very proud of that. And wow. uh, used to be an artist, watercolor, charcoal. Don't have as much time to do that. And I have two kids and a husband and a dog. He's a Shih Tzu, and he snores. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine it's interesting in our house. My little one is a gymnast, and my eldest has aspirations of being a teacher, and she does some modeling. So, it's very interesting
0: household. Wow, nice. What's the uh, What's the name of the Shih Tzu?
3: His name. So we got him from a rescue. So he came with the name J T. So J A Y and T. Oh, nice. Like like Mister nice. T, but J T. Yeah.
0: Very impressed by the Baltimore Marathon. I did the Baltimore ten miler once and was destroyed. And I think that's as far as I'm ever going to get as far as. long You on the running.
3: end? It's. I'm telling you, the marathon. They wait till the end and then they have the hills. You're like, really? You make it around the lake and then it's like that's like twenty one, and you're like, okay, no, this is not fair. Like,
0: <laughs> I, I, the Baltimore ten miler I did, I, my clinic preceptor Dr Katie Shaw uh, also did the 10 Miler at the same time and beat me by about 35 minutes like no. everyone me about but she was also 35 weeks pregnant at the time oh 32 gosh. weeks pregnant at the time so that was that was my very humbling never again that was
3: hey yeah. hey that's all, all, have-
0: all peloton here on <laughs>
3: Well, you know what? You oh. did it. You did it. You got out there and you gave it your all. That's good. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I once watched the marathon. It was, it was very thrilling.
3: It's <laughs> like I watched it. Hey, it's a lot. You know what? I tell you though, I think it was one of those things on my list, and I did it. I don't know that I. You you're tired at the end for sure. Like half marathons, you can go about your day. That full marathon, I was I was pretty toast for the for the rest of the day. It was it. quite the yeah. I believe it,
1: <laughs> so my question is, is there something recent that you read, like a book or something in pop culture, which you really enjoyed that you want to share with our listeners?
3: Oh gosh, there's so like I am a firm believer on in that just doing things that feed the soul, um so I love like Harlem Renaissance poetry. I, um, I like uh, all sorts of books. I read Michelle Obama's um, Becoming. I've read recently, there's some books on leadership that I really liked. Um, yeah, I just read a bunch of different things, whatever kind of suits me. And I usually don't read one book at a time. There's usually like three at a time. So I think I have two leadership. Books and another one by another author right now that's on more social structure, social dynamics. Um, uh, so that that's interesting.
0: Yeah. Great. Let's jump. Uh, let's dive yeah. into some content. Yeah. Let's talk about pediatric hypertension. And Dr. Crystal Norup did a wonderful job putting this amazing case for us together. And we're just gonna jump in, starting with our first patient, Elena Prill. <laughs> Elena. Elaine is a twelve-year-old child uh, presenting to Cashlet Children's Hospital for just a regular well-child visit. You're looking through their chart prior to the visit, and you do find a blood pressure reading that's it's at the ninetieth percentile for her age. On today's blood pressure reading, it is also elevated, and you're realizing this is something that you might need to be addressing in the visit. And before we go into the diagnosis and treatment. Can you kind of walk us through – what are some common pitfalls in measuring children's blood pressure? Is there anything about actual measurement of blood pressure that might be throwing us off and giving us a false positive or anything like that?
3: Oh, my gosh. There are so many things. Um, most of the time, the measurement is not done correctly, uh, actually. So when we when we actually did the guidelines, you'd be surprised. Like there weren't any photos um, – demonstrating how to appropriately measure a blood pressure in a child. The arm wasn't at the heart level. The feet weren't planted. They were measuring it in the left arm. Arms kind of free floating in space, unsupported. So there's so many things. And all of these things contribute to the blood pressure being elevated. Not to mention the child's nervous. So there actually was a study where they looked at like blood pressure that was measured by like the medical assistant or the nurse or whomever was measuring it first. And the cat, you know, the kid walks right into clinic. Maybe they're running late. The kid's mom's like, Come on, come on, we gotta get to the to the office. We're late. You know, they rush in, they sit down, somebody measures their blood pressure and psh, it's elevated. So they haven't had their, like, five to ten minutes to sit with their back supported, their feet planted, their upper arm at the heart level, and they measure the blood pressure, and it's elevated. A lot of times, too, the wrong signs cuff is used, so that can also impact the blood pressure. Um, they're making, I had one kid who was, like, making a fist, like, the whole time uh, they were having their blood pressure, you know, checked, like, nope, you don't want to make a fist. So all of these things impact the, uh, the blood pressure measurement.
1: So how how big should the cuff be? How how can we estimate when we're using it on a on a patient?
3: Yeah, so use look at the bladder. That's the inflatable portion. You can hold it. I like holding the width up. So it's about the width should be about forty percent of the arm circumference. So if you just look at the top part of your arm. You hold the cuff up, the width portion, and just wrap it and just make sure it covers at least 40%. And then the length of the bladder should be 80 to to 100%. It's better to size up than size down. So you're more likely to overestimate the blood pressure if the cuff's too small and less likely to underestimate it if the cuff's too big.
0: Great. Excellent. And so let's say we have done a QI project in our clinic. We are certain that we're getting a... Appropriate blood pressure me- measurement, and sure enough, on repeat, we try to repeat it to make it go away, like any good physician does. Um, but after repeating the blood pressure, we're still right at around ninetieth percentile for age. And so now we're bringing this to the forefront. Can you talk to us a little about what is pediatric hypertension? Is she hypertensive? How is this defined, and how should we be kind of approaching it when we see a patient with an elevated blood pressure like this?
3: Yeah. So. Elevated is different than high. Uh, So when we redid the fourth report, we did the 2017 Pediatric Hypertension Guidelines sponsored by the American Academy of Pediatrics. So What you'll see in that document is a nice table that kind of characterizes what blood pressure normative values are and who has normal blood pressure, what's elevated, what's stage 1, what's stage 2, which is the highest level. And it differs by age. So if you're 1 to 13, we still use um, normative data. So what that is is we took a a population of about 40 kids with a – twenty seventeen guidelines, we took out the obese kids, the kids with obesity. We basically said what's the median and then the ninety fifth percentile so and so forth and so based upon height and age, and so it's really looking at your mainly your height and determining whether that measurement is appropriate for you or not. Now, the difference is that once you turn thirteen um, and this is where the change occurred with the new guidelines is that we saw there was an issue uh, so there were, it was possible before where you could have a norma a normal blood pressure or say a elevated blood pressure say as high blood pressure as a as a kid, and then suddenly you entered the adult guidelines and you were considered to have a normal blood pressure so at thirteen though things started to align, so we basically redid the classifications and so at thirteen and above, the guidelines go along with the adult guidelines so if your blood pressure is less than 120 over 80 uh so systolic less than 120 Uh, diastolic less than 80, then it's normal. If your systolic is between 120 and up to 130 or 120 to 129, then that is elevated. And then 130 and above or 80 diastolic and above is high uh, stage one. And then above that 140 and above or 90 and above diastolic is stage two. So that was sort of reworked. Um, And then If you're younger than 13, then it has to do with the percentile. So if you're less than the 90th percentile, that's normal. If your blood pressure is between the 90th and up to the 95th or up to 120 over 80, uh, then that is, whichever is lower, then that's elevated. And then stage one is where you go from greater than or equal to the 95th percentile, up to less than the 95th plus 12 millimeters of mercury, or the 130 uh, to 80 over 139 to 89, whichever is um, lower. And then the stage two is greater than the 95th plus 12, either the systolic or diastolic, or greater than or equal to 140 over 90. So it's easier to see the table, and it's also easier if you're 13 and above to remember, but just suffice it to say that the, we use percentiles for the younger group uh, when we're looking at in-office blood pressure. So that's separate from ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. That's in-office blood pressure measurements.
1: What exactly is the, the, the reason for the stratification between the elevated blood pressure, the stage one and stage two. And is, is, is there a purpose for that?
3: Yeah. So it does have to do with some of the data we have about vascular changes. So it's not normal to have elevated blood pressure. There are some vascular changes that can occur, some stiffening of the blood vessels as seen by pulse wave velocity. When you're hypertensive though, that's when we really think about Target organ damage and long term risk for heart disease, including heart failure uh, so that that number really does track forward and um, and we are learning more about the relationships between blood pressure in childhood and adult onset heart disease, but that's where that relationship matters so It also matters because, you know, we don't want to treat everybody, right? Like you don't want to put every kid on medication, but you definitely want to address the kids who are more likely to develop some of that target organ damage, whether that's increased mass of the heart or, you know, adults we know to go on to have like heart failure and and increased mass and all of that. So it's it's that relationship between what we know to be the long-term consequences of high blood pressure and then trying to track that back uh, into childhood so that, you know, we're preventing disease, if that makes sense. Yeah.
0: And so you mentioned for this diagnosis, it sounds like for 13 and above, we almost treat it like an adult. For the other age groups, you mentioned in-office blood pressure readings at 90 or ninety fifth What is the difference between office blood pressure monitoring an ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. And when do you start thinking about using the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring? Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, yeah. So for people that don't know, so basically when you take your child or, you know, you're a provider and you're in the office, so the device that you're most likely to see initially is an oscillometric device. So that's an automated device. It uses each company has its own algorithm. It calculates the mean arterial pressure, and then depending on the algorithm for that company, that calculates the systolic and the diastolic blood pressure. That's one way of checking in office. So that's while the child's in the office, seated in front of you, again, proper position, all of that. Manual blood pressure is used to confirm. Uh, so sometimes those oscillometric blood pressure measurements are not quite right. So then you're using the Karat cough sounds from your either mercury or, or manual. Um, I don't think many places have mercury cuffs anymore, but anyway, but uh, manual blood pressure cuff. And then those are the ones you use in the office. The ambulatory blood pressure monitors are oscillometric devices, but you send kids home with them, um, and they wear them for 24 hours, usually in the non-dominant arm, which is a little different, um, because in the office, it should be the right arm that you're measuring the blood pressure in, assuming they have a normal aorta, uh, which is most people. But if they are, you're, if you're monitoring blood pressures at home, the gold standard to distinguish white coat high blood pressure, which is I have high blood pressure in the office, but my blood pressures are normal at home, is to use this ambulatory blood pressure monitor monitor. monitor. And so like I said, it's an oscillometric device. It goes around the arm. Kids wear it for 24 hours and it records blood pressure. And we get lots of data from it. A good uh, set of measurements is 40 to 50 measurements in a 24-hour period, uh, both during the day and at night. So that's really a great way to determine if somebody has, like I said, the white coat uh, hypertension or elevated blood pressure where their blood pressure is just elevated because they're nervous in the office, right? first time, second time seeing you, and whether or not they truly have blood pressure that's high or elevated at home. So that's the difference.
0: And when are you considering using these as opposed to just making the diagnosis and starting treatment? What role does um, the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring play with the new guidelines?
3: Yeah, so it's really used for to confirm the diagnosis. I mean, if you have a situation where the person comes in and their blood pressures are high on repeated visits, usually it's three. We usually require three visits. Then it's you know you don't necessarily have to move forward with the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. Uh, but if you suspect uh, that the child is hyper is uh, the blood pressures are elevated not because the child is hypertensive but because they're nervous, they have white coat effect, um, then it can be helpful. Sometimes what I'll do is even though uh, in pediatric practice, which is different than adults, in adult practice, there are some in the guidelines, some use, recommended use for like home oscillometric devices. Those are like the devices you buy at like, you know, Amazon or Walgreens or, you know, wherever, your local pharmacy. We don't use those as readily for kids because a lot of times the for little kids, especially the cuff sizes are not available uh, for them. So those smaller cuffs are not available. So you don't know the accuracy of the measurements that you're getting. The way of measuring it really should be the arm. Um, But if their home blood pressure is usually using somebody's like oscillometric devices, a little elevated. You know, sometimes that gives you a clue as well. It's usually the supportive data, not as diagnostic data to help with whether or not you need to proceed with that next step. Or if you've gotten a lot of variability in your measurements, you know, sometimes the kids come in and the blood pressure is high and then other times they come in and the blood pressure is normal. Then sometimes the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring can be helpful in that case.
1: So one question I have is when I do ambulatory blood pressure monitoring and say my adults, I think we have slightly different cutoffs for what we consider like hypertensive. Is is this true with uh, pediatric ambulatory blood pressure monitoring as well?
3: it's true they're very different um so uh cuz it's embargoed i can't talk too much about the new guideline that's coming out for abpm Ooh. uh but um yes to answer your question there are some some differences between how we uh define abnormal blood pressure um in from in the office and then how we define it using ambulatory blood pressure the tables are different they're not the same
0: and while we're still on the topic of diagnosing and figuring out the accurate blood pressure, can we go back to say, when are we checking blood pressure? Should we be doing it at every annual? And what about sick visits? Should we be checking blood pressure at sick visits?
3: Yeah. So, you know, it's a tough, we had, we talked about this um, when we were creating the guidelines. So, you know, it should be at every well child visit that the blood pressure is assessed. And certainly um, for kids who are uh, maybe have risk factors for, Heart disease or for high blood pressure, it should be checked, you know, starting as early as possible. For everyone else, it's about three years of age and above. Um, But uh, yeah, pretty much every uh, well child visit for just straightforward cases. If you have a child who has maybe some risk factors for um, high blood pressure, like kidney disease, or you suspect coarctation of the aorta, or they have congenital heart defects that, that are known to affect the aorta then you know it's definitely you want to check blood pressures you know at any visit uh, because you're you're monitoring you know, their blood pressures uh, carefully uh, but in general it's every annual well child visit or when they're younger they have uh, more frequent you know well child visits for vaccinations and things like that but yeah that's typically what we recommend
0: and i know at least in our resident clinic if you have a pediatric patient if they're 9 10 11 12 and they're hypertensive the first thing that everyone wants to talk about and start pursuing is a very comprehensive workup for what's called secondary hypertension. Can you explain to us what is primary or essential hypertension versus secondary hypertension and when should we maybe be leaning towards one versus the other?
3: Yeah, those are really good questions. So, you know, obviously your your exam is so important. So, if you have and this is true whether a child is young or old, but if you have a child who's under six, for sure you're thinking could this be a a secondary, meaning they have some other condition uh, that's causing them to have high blood pressure, whether that's kidney disease which is the most common, like I mentioned coarctation of the aorta which is a a narrowing in the aorta that's just near uh, where the PDA, the patent ductus arteriosus arises in utero but narrows down near the aortic isthmus. There are times Sometimes when there are, are endocrine-related uh, causes of, of high blood pressure like um, you know tumors that make uh, stress hormones, so like pheochromocytomas, um, thyroid disease, um, sometimes medications uh, can and can contribute to um, the blood pressure as well. So like steroids um, are, are a big one. Um, but basically, secondary high blood pressure or hypertension is when uh, there is another reason uh, for the child to have high blood pressure, and then primary hypertension is really, uh, it's, it's primary, meaning there's a, either there's a predisposition to salt and water retention or increased vascular tone. Uh, sometimes there's genetic reasons. I kind of lump obesity-related hypertension into that, although, you know, it's sort of, it's obesity-related. But yeah, so those, that's the difference. And when there's secondary uh, hypertension, the treatment is addressing that condition. So if it's like hyperthyroidism or if it's it's um, some sort of kidney disorder, you're addressing, if it's coarctation, you're addressing the, the cause. Versus like in primary, there is no cause to address per se. I mean, unless, like I said, obesity related, you're going to counsel on a healthy diet and weight loss, but it's different than like a secondary case. So that's 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 the difference between the two.
0: And so maybe as uh in our case, as a case example to kind of pick the low-hanging fruit first. Let's say Elena is an 11 or 12-year-old. She is in the 95th percentile for her weight. She has a strong family history of high blood pressure. She has a lot of other of those kind of obesity-related comorbidities. For these patients, what does the workup entail? Do we need to be looking for secondary causes, or can we say this is primary hypertension?
3: So you always want to, I mean, certainly it's easy to say in this case, it's its probably obesity related, right? Um, so you want to do your due diligence with assessing the blood pressure. Sometimes even slight changes in weight, it uh, doesn't have to be dramatic changes, but even slight weight changes in weight can have an impact on the blood pressure. So you're always proceeding with lifestyle counseling. But it's also true that, um, don't be fooled that every person with obesity necessarily has hypertension just because of obesity related hypertension sometimes there is thyroid disease in addition to or sometimes there is and i've seen that or there's coarctation and so nobody picked up on it because nobody checked uh pulses in the groin uh to see if they were the same quality uh as the brachial uh pulse um the quality and you know, whether there was any delay, um, so you you definitely want to have a high index of suspicion of other uh, potential uh, you know causes. But in large part, most of the cases that we see, particularly uh, in older kids, um, so your eleven-year-olds and so forth, um, it's going to be you know, if they have obesity, it's related to that. Family history, sometimes the way that I look at that is, um, you know, the choices we make, sometimes the foods that we eat, the amount of food that we eat, uh, how we eat, when we eat, we learn. And so uh, sometimes those behaviors are passed on to kids. So preference for high salt foods, high fat foods, lack of physical activity, you know, can also play a role. There are some, you know, genetic syndromes that contribute to high blood pressure, but in large part, when you see families, my my experience has been it's it's some learned some learned behaviors uh, there as well.
0: This might actually be an okay time to ask. And our our mission as a, a medical education podcast. We were to identify racial disparities, racial inequalities that go on in medicine. And I know, especially in adult medicine, this is something that comes up a lot in hypertension, where the adult guidelines incorporate race. In pediatrics, can you talk about racial disparities in pediatric hypertension?
3: Yeah. Well, stay tuned for some of my uh, results from some of my studies, because uh, <laughs> we're Great. looking Great. at some aspects of this. Um, yeah, you know, it's a sad, uh, uh, sad to say, uh, but, you know, there are biases in medicine um, and the they do carry out in terms of how we practice medicine. And I, you know, being a African American woman myself, I, I can say, I don't, I don't know that any such things are always intentional. Um, I think sometimes it's just, sometimes it's the way in which uh, stories are obtained, histories are obtained. There's so many different factors, but um, I, I would say that, you know, First and foremost, race is a social construct. There's very little genetic basis, and I know that's controversial to many people, but it's true. I mean, I'm not, there's some very good uh, studies looking at that and um, from reputable um, journals like Nature. So um, I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. So when you talk about social constructs, then, uh, and race being a social construct, then how does that interplay with the uh, diagnosis and the treatment? It's it's probably multifactorial. Uh, certainly, if I live in environments where I am maybe, um, you know, access to healthy foods, safe places to exercise, um, that can play a role. Empowerment to make changes, perceptions of health perceptions of what's being reported, allowance for certain tolerance of of certain values, or, or parental reluctance uh, to treatment. So, you know, unfortunately, um, we do have a history in this country of some not so nice things happening to people of color, you know, in medicine. Um, and so that, you know, It doesn't seem like, you know, it's like, well, that happened so long ago, but memories um, last long sometimes. So, uh, you know, some of that plays into it as well. So it's a very complex story. But um, there are some, when you look at some well-published studies, like every year, There's a published uh, study looking at heart disease in the U.S. and globally. So Varani et al., 2021, for instance, looks at just globally and in the U.S. prevalence of disease. And when they break it down, you know, hypertension prevalence by race, you do see um, um, some disparities there in terms of age of uh, both in youth, but also in adults in terms of the prevalence of high blood pressure and heart failure and heart disease. For adults, uh, late to diagnosis, uh, so Uh, tardiness to diagnosis, I think, has a a major impact on the prevalence of, say, heart failure and um, heart disease, uh, stroke, heart attack. Um, But it's true of a lot of populations. I mean, one of the other areas that I study is dyslipidemia. 90% 90 of people with familial FH don't know they have it. And that's all comers. So It it is complicated, um, but there are differences in prevalence. I don't think it's different when we're born, um, although – I will say that we do know that things like um, maternal preeclampsia and maternal gestational hypertension may have an impact on the vasculature of the fetus um, and the risk for the child developing hypertension later. So this idea of primordial prevention is also important and something that we're looking at more. We actually have a a review article that touches on some of those topics. And one of my uh, mentors, Bonnie Faulkner, she has another a nice article on primordial prevention. Um, so, talking about some of those aspects of how disease starts. So, the best thing that we can do is, I think, as for trainees, is to teach. And I, and I'm a firm believer of this. Uh, don't present your patients as you know, ten year old African American kid. Uh, don't do that. I, I think that. The um, it sets up, unfortunately, we haven't advanced as a society enough, I think, where we're able to kind of not jump to certain conclusions when you hear those things. And I, and I know I'm, I'm, it's not going to be a popular thing. Everybody's going to be like, oh, that's not true. That's not true. But it is true, at least for some. And so I think that we have to be aware of that. We have to be aware of our own internal biases because we all have them and make sure that that's not inter- interfering with the care that we provide. And I think if we do that, then we as a group collectively can help address some of these disparities. I also think it takes education, educating communities about uh, some of these topics. So that's, you know, you know, I was ha- very happy to be invited to to be a part of this podcast. But I think, you know, getting the word out to, to communities and to people because even very well-meaning, like adult cardiologists, you know, like, oh, you did you know? I had one cardiologist come up to me. And he's like, "Did you know that, that hypertension starts in kids?" I'm like, "Actually, yeah, I I did." Like, you know, like it's, uh, you know, it's. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's it's interesting because people think they're kids. Why why should they have these things? Um, why should they have heart disease? Why should they have high blood pressure? Why should they have high cholesterol? Um, but they do, and we have to think about that. Sorry, I think I was on like a no, little no, soapbox there. It's,
0: no, it's, no, I appreciate the answer. Uh, and I the it. Insights.
1: I guess the next question would be like, what? What exactly does the workup entail for for the secondary hypertension? So you you know you have maybe a suspicion, like, do you, and you maybe have a red flag here and there. Like, what what do you do next? Yeah,
3: so you're trying to get to what is the uh the cause, right? So you're looking at you know thyroid. You're looking at Uh, renal function. You're looking at uh, their physical exam. Do they have cafe LA spots or axillary freckling? You know, uh, do they have signs of, you know, tachycardia and, um, you know, signs of pheochromocytoma? So, you know, you're looking at these potential reasons that the blood pressure can be high um, and sort of in a systematic way. Uh, The way that we uh, sort of break things up that uh, cash lack. I'll say. I won't say our institution, but we have various groups. So I'm a preventive cardiologist. We have nephrologists. We have an endocrinologists um, and a weight management program. So if they're six and below, uh, especially if there's a history of premature birth, um, they see the nephrologist first. Um, and the nephrologist does their work up for causes of like, you know, Renal, renal vascular hypertension. Renal ultrasounds aren't always the best, but you're not going to do like angiography or CT on everybody, right? So you want to kind of figure out who has what. Um, And sometimes you start with a renal ut- ultrasound, but it may not be where you finalize the the diagnosis. Thyroid studies, like I mentioned, and like I said, your physical exam, sometimes you'll send your analysis. Uh, you definitely, definitely want to check those pulses, upper versus lower extremity pulses, the quality is there pulses tardis where there's a delay on the onset of the femoral pulse versus the uh, the brachial pulse, um, you know, just sort of starting from head to toe, or do they look cushionoid like they've been on steroids? Do they have any enlarged thyroid? Do they, you know, have rashes um, that maybe are suc- like uh, s- suspicious for, um, you know, things like neurofib- neurofibromatosis, as I was mentioning, the axillary freckling and things like that, and um, you know, any abdominal masses, things like that. Uh, So there's a whole list of causes that we put into the 27 guideline, a 2017 guideline. So it's always nice to just refer to, or maybe keep it as a dot phrase to remind yourselves.
1: Now, do we do you get anything like uh, EKG or other types of imaging other side the renal ultrasound?
3: Yeah, so in terms of from a cardiac uh, workup, you know, in uh, the adult guidelines, EKGs are recommended. Um, EKGs actually have a very high false positivity rate for things like left ventricular hypertrophy. So, if the, you know, the nurses say they put the nerd if they put the EKG leads just a little too far to the left. Everybody has LVH. So, um, so we don't use that actually anymore in adults. They use it because they're looking for things like atrial fibrillation. Um, So we did not uh, keep that in the 27 guidelines in terms of the EKG. Now, we do use other imaging uh, for diagnosis of, like, coarctation of the aorta or mid-aortic syndrome, which is another vascular cause of hypertension, but we're also using ECHO for uh, assessments of any signs of target organ damage, which is left ventricular hypertrophy. So, to your point, the diagnosis of coarctation, for instance, is, you you know, you suspect it based upon the exam and blood pressures, you have a, a higher blood pressure in the um, Upper extremity, usually the right arm, versus either lower extremity if they have a right or garch, uh, right? And then the echo can be confirmatory. Um, the other reason you can have that is um, not as common, but we do have some cases. Uh, at cash lack is mid aortic syndrome, which is a narrowing in the descending aorta, which also gives you, um, you know, higher uh, sort of upper extremity and lower um, lower extremity blood pressures, but just not as common. That can also involve the renal arteries uh, as well. Um, and then, like I mentioned, from a from a the secondary effects of having high blood pressure, then we're measuring left ventricular mass. Um, and looking at uh, those aspects, um, as well, function
2: as well.
0: And so it sounds like for these individuals with hypertension or high blood pressure, you're, you're really doing the good physical exam of all the, the great physical exam pearls you mentioned. You're maybe starting a little bit of the initial workup with things like thyroid studies, especially if you're concerned, or, uh, it sounds like for sits in a younger renal causes seem to be higher on the list. And so maybe, right. Is that right? So maybe, uh, A BMP, checking the urine and the renal ultrasounds, but it sounds like those are not completely keeping you out of the clear. So, am I hearing right that you almost say if it's a five year old with hypertension, you're pulling the trigger and doing a nephrology referral? Justin, if you want to order a BMP, a UA, and a renal ultrasound, feel free, but that kid needs to see a urologist or a nephrologist to see if there's other imaging that needs to be done.
3: I I would. That's been my, that's been my practice. You know, I'm not trained as a nephrologist. We work, I work very closely with them. Just like if, if, you know, we suspect coarctation, I would expect that they would send those, those kids to me, but it's, um, it's important because, or if it's an endocrine related, you know, cause, you want to make sure you have, uh, your subspecialists involved. Now, if you are operating a place where you're remote and it's just you, um, then there are steps to take. Um, in which case, you know, I would say, you know, you're starting with your laboratory testing, if it's renal and your renal ultrasound and size of the kidneys and cysts and things like that. And then if there's any suspicion from the renal ultrasound, or you still see that there's, you know, very significant hypertension, maybe you're moving forward with like some further diagnostic imaging, just like if, you know, if you suspect cartation, you're going to be getting an echo and, um, and moving and moving down that path. So the guideline is pretty comprehensive, uh, in terms of things to look for. Um, and I think whenever you get to a point where you're less comfortable, you should definitely, um, seek the you know consultation with a with a with a colleague that you know maybe maybe it's a specialist in the area maybe seen cases before but um, but definitely get some advice there. But for the older kids, you know you have a 13 year old or in this case an 11 year old who's uh, obese and they have high blood pressure. You're going to look to see what impact you can make and you've checked for things like you check the quality of the pulses, you checked uh, you don't have any abdominal masses, you've checked their you know skin findings and all of that. I mean you're still going to do a, a detailed uh, physical exam. But then after that, if they're still, you know, hypertensive, maybe it's stage one, uh, not stage two or more, uh, then you might give some time and allow them to make some lifestyle changes. The other point I like to make is the more severe the hypertension, the more you want to think about secondary causes as well. So, you know, you've got a kid where the, the blood pressure is super high, like, you know, they may not, be symptomatic, but it's 160 over 110, it's pretty high. So you're not going to just send that, you know, kid home and say, okay, well, let's let's see, you know, you're definitely going to repeat the measurements um, and you're definitely going to look to see whether or not there are some secondary causes in that case as well. But um, in large part, what you'll see is, is lower numbers than that. Especially if it's, um, you know, something related to like obesity or, or um, you know, a, a uh, one of those types of causes, uh, the more common causes.
0: And it does sound like you're really mentioning the, the equal pulses as is a is a key finding or a key thing on physical. If if they have good pulses, femoral pulses, left pulses, right pulses, does that rule out most vascular if they're not uh, an abdominal bruit or uh, mass or those things where you can safely say this is probably not a vascular secondary cause?
3: Yeah, you have to be really careful depending on the age. Um, So you definitely want to check upper versus lower extremity blood pressures. And, you know, anytime uh, you're, you know, uh, evaluating for hypertension and you suspect that the they just the blood pressure seems higher than you would expect. The person's not responding like you would expect. Um, you want to think about: Is there something else that you're missing? And I've definitely seen, you know, a case where it was just like a 17-year-old who presented late, um, I think, to an adult cardiologist for hypertension and was treated as though they had just sort of run-of-the-mill hypertension, and come to find out, he had coarctation of the aorta. So there are going to be some other signs there: um, murmurs on exam, you know, maybe you know signs uh, in terms of the pulses in terms of the blood pressure gradient. So there's going to be some other, um, some, you know, other signs that maybe something is, is more than just your you're right in the mill like, you know, primary uh, hypertension.
1: So it sounds like, you know, say we have a patient and we decide that she has, you know, primary hypertension here or, um, and you want to really pursue like lifestyle modifications. What, what does that counseling sound like? And how do you take into account like financial issues, you um, you know health disparities as you to talk to parents and and the child if they're able to about what these lifestyle modifications look like,
3: yeah, so my approach is a really comprehensive one and I have to say I just want to take one moment to say that um, and maybe I know lots of providers do this, but I, I make it a point, And when I'm teaching trainees, I make it a point to, you know, stress to them the importance of getting to know each child as an individual, because a lot of where your lifestyle intervention is going to come into play is recognizing where that particular, where you can meet that child individually. So sometimes, um, you know, like today I had a, a patient and, you know, they're like, look, it's just not safe for us to go outside. Like, it's just, you know, we live in a very busy street. Like, um, no, we don't have access to a gym, but we have some other things. Like in this case, they actually had a little, um, they had a little treadmill in the house or sometimes the kids, what they have is their phones, right. And they go on TikTok or they go on YouTube or they go on some social media platform and there's music videos and things they can dance to and they like to dance. So, I try to try to find the things that they are interested in when counseling, but we also talk about, you know, in terms of like diet, um, I have a slew of handouts and I have some like, you know, recommended diets where it's sort of, um, there's some cultural diversity to it. So there's like some different types of foods. And so, you know, it's important to kind of but talk about what constitutes sort of a healthy composition to the diet, um, the importance of reducing salt. And, in, you know, I would say the closer to the ground, the better. So, like, you know, like fruits and vegetables. And I used to say vegetables and fruits because everybody's like, well, I like fruit. But anyway, <laughs> mm-hmm. so so trying to, like, find areas where, you know, you can make some headway. And I also make it a point to find something, something that they're doing positive Cause I don't know about you, but, but for me, like if, if you just say, oh, you've got these like 10 things that you're doing wrong. Well, I've already like blocked you out, right? Like you don't do this. You don't do that. Like, okay, block. So, but if I'm saying, oh, you walk your dog three times a week. Oh, tell me about your dog. Oh, that's so great. Do you think your dog wants to go on a little bit of a longer walk? How about like if we. 45 minutes you know like could we do that five days out of the week you know they're like oh well you know and so you try to like find ways for them to feel motivated and you put it in their shoot like you put it I've had kids who said (laughs) I had one like for a while I was like why don't you make a little vision board like where do you see yourself like where are your goals put some positive quotes I had one girl come back she had her notebook she had her vision sheet she had all her positive quotes and then behind it were like sheets where she had put like she decided on her Apple Watch. She was going to record how many times she, you know, how many minutes she reached her peak heart rate, and the amount of time that she was exercising. And gosh darn it, she lost a fair amount of weight and felt better. And she felt good. So your the lifestyle intervention needs to be something that that resonates with the kids, um, and each individual kid. And it takes it can take a little time. And then you're also, like, addressing some of the barriers as well. So you're also getting a glimpse into what the household is like. The other key uh, thing that we found, too, that can be very helpful is having encouraging family members to eat together. So you're less likely to overeat if you're eating with someone, right? So even if mom or dad works later, maybe they work the night shift. Say, oh, the night shift. Do you have a brother or sister there? Yeah. Could you guys eat dinner together? Okay, you know, they try it. Um so that can make a difference in you giving a social some social structure to them. We talk about not eating too late at night, we talk about what they're drinking, uh we talk about ways to sort of more focus prescriptive changes. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but you know, you're trying to at least sow the seed. And you'd be surprised sometimes kids do make some pretty substantial changes to their diet and lifestyle.
1: Awesome.
0: And so Let's say that we meet Elena where she's at. She's doing TikTok videos. She's completing her circles on the Apple Watch. She's really giving the lifestyle behaviors a adequate try. Um we bring her back in six months to to see how she's doing. And unfortunately we're we're rechecking the blood pressure and it's still it's still pretty elevated. It hasn't it hasn't moved too much. At what point do we Say, we need to pull the trigger and start pharmacotherapy, or are there other diagnostic tests that we're ordering at this point? How are we approaching this patient who is compliant or or, uh, is able to pursue lifestyle management but doesn't seem to be getting the, the blood pressure benefits that we're seeing?
3: Yeah. So basically uh, what that kind of boils down to is it also, we also have to look at how significant the blood pressure elevation is. So let's say you're pretty, let's say you're not quite sure that it's white coat versus say stage one hypertension. So high, but not super high. You can have them wear ambulatory blood pressure monitor, but if that's abnormal uh, and you've gone through your diagnostic evaluation, then you're going to consider initiation of treatment. Now, this is when the question becomes for the provider right So if you're a general provider you feel comfortable okay start but make sure you're comfortable with that your measurements are accurate um, Once you start medication for me it's really challenging to kind of backtrack so I you know I, I hesitate to stop medications if they've already been started So for me it's helpful at that point as you know as a preventive cardiologist if they're referred. Um, so maybe the pediatrician's already checked at least two and they're like, you know, they're pretty high. Maybe they checked a third and they're going to refer. Um, that's helpful for me because then I have a sense, a, an ability to kind of assess pre-medication where we are and kind of check things. Um, but let's say you're the provider, you feel comfortable, you're pretty sure. Then yeah, sometimes you do need to to start medication and it's always start low. You want to start with a, a medication. You want to explain the reason why you're starting it. And again, that's when I go into, with parents, like, why do we treat high blood pressure? What are we trying to prevent? I I talk about, you know, the American Heart Association's Life Simple 7, which is not so simple, right? So it's three health factors, four health behaviors, it's your, you know blood pressure, cholesterol, blood sugar, and the behaviors are your, your weight, your exercise, your your smoking, um, and your exercise, diet, smoking, and your weight. Uh, so then those are the four. Uh, so you want to address all of those things and then, and then you, you say, well, look, you know, they've got, uh, a major, you know, hypertension is a, is a major contributor uh, to heart failure um, and heart disease. And so we treat it uh, to help preserve the function of the heart in the long term and so uh we've tried lifestyle hasn't been as successful as we'd like we continue to to recommend lifestyle changes but we you know we need to start uh your child on a low dose uh blood pressure lowering medication and people have issue with that i know not everybody feels the same but uh you know we do know that blood pressure can track into adulthood um, and there's some great studies that, that have shown that. So, uh, low dose once a day, preferably because it's easier to administer. So lisinopril or, uh, or, uh, uh, like a, a calcium channel blocker, uh, it, those are some of the ones I, I typically start with, like amlodipine, um, just because they're once a day. And then we we bring them back. We reassess the blood pressure. Always get an echo before we start medication. Again, you're looking for baseline mass. You're looking for any signs of, you know, coarctation or any other um, structural changes and uh, or structural abnormalities before starting the medication. And then, uh, yeah, and then we follow them. Sometimes you need more than one uh unfortunately too
0: and just to clarify sorry the uh, 13 year old again with this you know essential hype with obesity related factors family history think no clear signs of secondary hypertension and we you know feel like it's slightly primary are we still getting an echo on these kids before we start pharmacotherapy
3: We've recommended that, uh, in the, uh, I, and I think it's helpful because what you're looking for is any sign of target organ damage um, at baseline, and periodically we'll repeat it. You know, it's not common, uh, but it has been reported that there can be uh, kids with hypertension and decreased function. So I have one teenage girl I follow now who has pretty significant high blood pressure. Uh, and she came to me sort of in an inpatient referral, but lots of comorbidities, including very severe um obesity, and it's been a difficult time uh managing that. You talk about lots of the social factors that go into obesity. Um, you know, we have a psychologist and we have other subspecialists that work with us. I have a new you know, I have a dietitian that works with me. I'm very you know, thankful to have these resources available to my patients. Um, but despite that, it's been, it's been a challenge. And so, um, but she has poor function. And I think in that case, um, there's other reasons we did genetic testing and things like that, but it's, but you can see that, um, you know, one of my mentors reported on the same, um, before he retired you know cases of of seeing uh, decreased function uh, in some of the kids with hypertension but it's not common usually what you see there may be some elevations in the mass of the heart but you you want to have that baseline information and and again looking at the structure uh, of the heart before starting um the medication
1: Now um talking about medications a little more is there so sort of a combined question i have one is 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 there an age where i'm like as a pediatrician You know, this is way too young for me to start a medicine that I feel comfortable with. These should definitely be going to cardiology or nephrology for management. And then, uh, yeah, so that's the first part of my question. Yeah,
3: no. So, you know, again, you wanna make sure you're not dealing with uh secondary causes. Like if a child has renal artery stenosis, uh, gosh, you wanna be really careful about that. So what you're using to, to treat. So then that's where your your nephrologist is gonna be so helpful. So I, I definitely think the younger the kids that they have this, especially of a significant hypertension, you gotta think beyond this is the run of the mill hypertension. You know, you've got really high measurements, there's stage two and above, you know, you, you want to think, gosh, I, I really should have this this child seen by a subspecialist. Um, and sometimes the renal evaluation is clear, and sometimes it's an endocrine-related. Field chromocytomas are not that common, but they're, you know... There are reports and there are other endocrine-related conditions that you want to be aware of as well. So if the blood pressure is really high, don't ignore it. That's the first thing. Don't just think, oh, the kid's just nervous. You you definitely want to work it out. And you don't want to necessarily just treat in those cases. Again, you want to make sure you go through the due diligence of thinking about secondary causes.
1: And as you're talking about, you know, so say we've ruled out our secondary causes and we're just having just a very resistant hypertension and you've already looked and made sure that, you know, even though it's a kid, you know, they're, they're adhered to medications and they're taking their medicines as they should be. You know, you said that, you know, uh, an ACE inhibitor and a calcium channel blocker seem to be sort of your first lines in your own practice. What's that progression look like? Is it, you know, depending on what they're looking like, calcium channel blocker and then ACE inhibitor and then a thiazide diuretic and then beta blocker like how like for you personally like how does that look
3: yeah that's a good question so um so primarily when i see more of the resistant uh so we'll call it resistant although i'm using that term loosely it's not quite the same as what we describe in adults um which i believe is like three or more any hypertensive medications including a, a thiazide diuretic um i will tell you my practice has been and we Published on this as well. Um, that there's some cases where you have to use obviously more than one antihypertensive agent, and these are usually, uh, always, but usually if as long as heart structure is normal and kidney function is normal, you're talking about some other comorbidity like like obesity that just is interplaying with the blood pressure and the and the more obese the child, it's sort of like this parabolic sort of increase uh, in risk for hypertension. And so the um, agents that I use, if I start with a let's say if I start with a calcium channel blocker, I might add a hydrochlorothiazide if they're obese um, with that, or likewise, or if I have an ACE inhibitor on board, I might add a hydrochlorothiazide on board. It does depend on the situation though. So if I have like a, a post-transplant patient, right, some of my transplant patients have hypertension, um, I tend not to use ACEs as much because some of the other medications we use can be nephrotoxic, like the tacrofibra. Lyme is. So I try to use a calcium channel blocker first and then, but if I need to, then I'll add uh, an ACE inhibitor on board for them, which is a little different than like a, a kid with obesity, I, the way I stack the medications if I need to. Um, and again, you're still all the time doing your counseling about, you know, salt and diet and other medications and other things that could be contributing to the blood pressure. So. It's kind of like the circle back, right? You always make your diagnosis and you make sure you've covered everything in your first circle and then it's not quite responding like you think it should. You circle back and make sure, did I miss anything? Is this, you know, did we look at all these particular aspects? And then you keep going forward. Um, and, so, and you should get a response. I mean, you should be able to control the blood pressure if you've addressed it appropriately.
0: Anything else that Dr. Baker-Smith you can think of that, in a episode about pediatric hypertension, we should be talking about that we haven't discussed yet.
3: Um, You know, there are uh, situations of, you know, really extreme uh, elevations in blood pressure. So, you know, I, I don't think that's the focus so much of this podcast, but like your hypertensive urgencies and emergencies. Um, so that's something to you know, to be aware of as well. Um, there are times when, you know, you do need to, to send that child to like the emergency room setting, um, to be, you know, to, to, to have the blood pressure addressed, um, because, because the blood pressure is just so high. Um, and again, you don't want to ignore that. And usually with the urgency, you know, there's, minimal or no symptoms. The emergencies is where, you know, there's some signs of, of organ damage and and symptoms. Um so those there are some times when, you know, it does require, you know, sending the sending the person into the emergency room uh setting to and inpatient to have the uh, blood pressure assessed and, and managed. Um, you know, we've had cases where there've been like you know, endocrine, adrenal tumors, and things like that. So, um, it's just important to to pay attention to that as well.
0: And are those in cases where there is clear signs of end organ damage, similar to adult, or is there a cutoff where if you have a thirteen year old with a systolic over one sixty, they need to be seen more urgently?
3: Yeah. So really, I mean, once you're in sort of to that uh, stage two range, I mean, you're talking about pretty elevated. Blood pressure. So you're paying attention to your 140s over 90s, but certainly like the 160s over 100s. Those are those are really high. Um, I'm trying to remember how we defined it in the guideline, but I think it was like you know it's it's these blood pressures are pretty high. So it's it's something where you don't want to ignore that.
1: Awesome. Sort of as we as we wrap up, my one of my favorite last questions is: What do you see in the future of hypertension management? What research do you see coming down the hill, or or what? Any new medications what 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 are the things that are, make you excited about management of hypertension and pediatrics?
3: Oh gosh, I mean by, I well you'll have to uh, stay tuned too because i'm I'm involved in some really like i'm some projects I'm really really excited about um sort of some front edge cutting edge sort of things, so we'll see how things sort of um, uh, move forward. but um I do think there's gonna be a role for like um you know AI artificial intelligence and um you know some data driven uh, pathways. Um, I think, you know, the other thing I'm excited about is that we have, as time goes on, we'll have more data regarding the links between blood pressure measurements in youth and how that manifests as uh, blood pressure and disease in adults. Um, So I think that's going to shed some light, and I think more studies that are comprehensively using ambulatory blood pressure monitor data, which gives us measurements during the day and the night, I think that also will be helpful. Uh, more vascular studies. Um, so you'll see, uh, we already have some studies uh, using, you know, pulse wave velocity and carotid intima media thickness and and some other augmentation index things like that. But more of that, we haven't yet use those, uh, technologies in general practice, um, from echo perspective, strain, um, and some other, you know, ways of looking at the heart. Um, yeah, there's just, there's, there's some things that, uh, that are coming down the pike. I think that will be, will be good to see
0: for, uh, we talked about a lot of different, uh, parts of the guidelines and everything from diagnosis to treatment to what not to miss. Do you have any general main take-home points for listeners, or things that you want people to really walk away with after listening to this podcast episode?
3: So please measure the blood pressure correctly. (laughs) It's just my—I mean, uh, it really should be the right arm. The normative data is really derived from the right arm. Uh, You can compare it to other limbs and uh, for comparative measurements, but that's um, don't discount that that kids can have high blood pressure. So it really should be assessed um, at the well-child visits. Um, and use the opportunity when you see, you know, weight increasing across percentiles to really start talking to families before there's dramatic increases in weight to start talking to families about healthy lifestyle. Um, We just released our hypertension, uh, the uh, AHA statement on the relationship between sleep disordered breathing and cardiovascular health in children. Uh, So there is a relationship. So you definitely want to pay attention not only to what happens during the day, but what happens at night in terms of the quality of the child's sleep and whether there's any signs of obstruction, because that also, too, is related to um, the cardiovascular health of the child. So, uh, And, you know, if there's still questions, feel free to go to our very comprehensive 2017 guidelines, which a lot of effort went into creating.
1: Before we go, do you have anything to plug? Anything any cool things that you that you wanna bashly make sure that our, our listeners know about?
3: Oh, cool things related to the heart or cool things and, related anything
1: to anything. Heart
0: related Netflix show, anything I, that you I,
3: think are I, I just I I just want to plug. I want to put a plug out for uh, Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka, who taught all of our all of us driven people to: it's okay to take a mental health break. We all need it, and that is actually a sign of strength. Um, So, just plug out to those phenomenal women.
1: Uh, Excellent. Thank you so much. (laughs)
0: That's a great, a great ending. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. This was wonderful. Uh, What a great way to kind of review some of the guidelines and learn from the experts. Thanks for for joining us tonight.
3: Well, thank you for
2: having me. I appreciate it. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders.
0: It's for the kids.
2: Get show notes and sign up for our weekly knowledge food formula feeds newsletter on our website at thecribsiders.com.
0: We are committed to providing you with high-value practice, changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. Please subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecaribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our wonderful producer for this episode, Dr. Crystal Nora, and our wonderful social media team. I've been Justin Lee Burke.
2: And I've been Crystal. Kanto Nora.
1: And this has been Chris Chu. I, 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 will this has been Chris Chu. This is me, the Chu Man. Good night.
0: Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.bcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.